Good morning. The reading today is from Psalm 2, um, and that can be found on page 448 of the Church Bibles. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in, in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, let's pray as we begin. Our Father, two things we ask. First, that you would help us understand what your word is saying. And second, that we might be affected by it. May these inspired words and the truths they convey raise our affections for Jesus or cause us to seek him out, to lay hold of him, to make our peace with God through him, and to find refuge in God's King. And we pray in his name. Amen. Now, Psalm 2, if you can have that in front of you in your Bibles. That'll help us. It is an extraordinary uh, psalm. It's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. For example, it's quoted in Acts uh, in the context of opposition against the gospel. Why do the nations rage? The Lord has established his king, confidence in the face of of opposition. It is quoted in the Gospels, you are my son. It is quoted in Hebrews, in that magnificent passage in Hebrews that describes Jesus as the high priest. The writer to the Hebrews quotes from Psalm 2, you are my uh, son. You are my son, uh, as we'll see, means you are my Messiah King. And in the passage in Hebrews, the King is set alongside the great high priest, the Lord uh, Jesus. Psalms 1 and 2 function as a pair in the book of Psalms. 
Psalm 1 exhorts us as believers to meditate on the Word of the Lord day and night. And as we meditate on the Word of God, and meditate does not simply mean study or analyze, it means meditate, it means to hum, to moan, to mutter, to dwell, to learn, to write it on our minds and on our hearts. As we meditate prayerfully on the Word of God, we meditate on the content of the Word of God. The content of the Word of God is Christ. Him we proclaim, uh, Colossians. And as we meditate on the content of the Word of God that is Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, we meet with the living Christ. He becomes alive to us as His Word is proclaimed and studied. You see the link between the Psalms. Psalm 1, meditate on the Word of God. And as we do so, we meditate on Christ and we meet Christ. What is Psalm 2 about? Who is the Lord's anointed? It is Christ. So Psalm uh, uh, 2 ends with kiss the Son, devotion to the Lord Jesus. So they are linked, but let's focus on the text of Psalm uh, 2. Now, the psalm divides into neat sections. One has to always be careful when you divide up poetry. Um, but we take comfort from the fact that when we sing, it is split into verses. So it's not divided in the same way as an epistle or a letter or a gospel. But there are movements in the psalm as it progresses. And one of the particular features of this psalm is the different voices that are speaking. And it would have been great to have had the psalm read by a number of different people because there are different voices speaking. There's the voice of the world, there's the voice of the writer, and there is the voice of the king. So we'll see that as we read the psalm. But the first point, or the first three verses in the psalm, let me give you a title for it. The world rebels against the Lord and his Messiah, King. And this is so contemporary so bang up to date, so real, so relevant. The world rebels against the Lord and His Messiah, a King. Let's read these verses again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? That's like a rhetorical question. As you look out on the world at any point in human history, why do the nations rage against the Lord? Why do they do that against the Lord and His anointed King? Why do the peoples plot in vain? You just get a hint there, even in verse 1 of the psalm, that it's futile. Why do the kings of the earth set themselves against, uh, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us? Now, note first the names in the psalm. Who is the Lord, L-O-R-D, and who is the anointed? The Lord, L-O-R-D, capitals, is Yahweh. That is the Hebrew name for God. The Lord's anointed, the word anointed, is the same word as uh, Messiah. The Lord's uh, Messiah. Uh, the word Messiah comes from transliterating the Hebrew word for anointed. I read that in a commentary. I have no idea what it means but I think what it means is that the word anointed is the same word as Messiah. Okay, let's take our, uh, the expert's word for that. 
And if it's the word Messiah, the Lord's Messiah here, uh, the Greek equivalent of the word Messiah is Christ. Christ. So what the psalm is saying is um, that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His Messiah or His Messiah King. Now, the world here means just humanity in their rebellion against the Lord and His Messiah King. They rebelled then when David wrote the psalm about 1000 BC. Uh, David is referred to in Acts 4.25 as the writer of the psalm. That's why we know. People rebelled before then against God. People have rebelled against God ever since. It's the human condition. Rebellion against the Lord and His Messiah King. Now, what's so helpful in this psalm is we get the nature of the rebellion described. This is exactly it. Just look at it. It's so contemporary. It's so real. Verse 3, let us... This is the rebellion. Now, this is a new voice in the psalm. This is the voice of the world, the rebellious. Notice it's in uh, direct speech. Let us burst their bonds apart. Uh, What's that say? Let us sunder the link between God and His Messiah. It's pretty strong. And cast away their cords from us. In other words... Let me try and summarize that. This is the, this is the cry of the, the, the humanity. We will not submit to the rule of God. We will not have it. We will not express our devotion to His anointed one. We will live in our own way. We will have no truck or no tie with the Lord nor His anointed. Now, that's 1000 BC, and it's bang up to date. It's just how it is. And it's a pretty big deal. Notice the link between rebellion against the Lord's Messiah and the Lord. The link is expressed in verse 2 against the Lord and against His anointed. And opposition against the Messiah is opposition against the Lord. We could extend that in the New Testament one more step. Opposition against the Messiah's people is opposition against the Messiah's opposition against the Lord. And all the way it comes back to the rejection or the opposition against the people of the Messiah or the Messiah, whoever that is, we'll discover that later, comes back to opposition against Yahweh, the covenant God, the God of creation. Everything comes back to Him. How does God respond to human rebellion? Well, that's where the psalm moves in verses 4 to 6. Let's call verses 4 to 6 God's derision and wrath at rebellion. I want you to just be honest as we read these words. Is this a comfortable picture of God? Does this fit within our conception of God? He who sits in the heavens, that said God on his throne, laughs. The Lord holds them, that's humanity, 
who rebel against him in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, that's his fury, and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have said my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now God laughs, but as uh, one writer on the psalm very helpfully, I think, said, and this is stuck with me all week. God laughs, but this is no laughing matter. It may not be a comfortable picture of God for us. The more we get into the psalm, perhaps the less comfort we will feel. Perhaps it's not the picture of God that we have constructed, painted if you like. One thing that this psalm confronts us with, as does much of the Bible, is that God doesn't need us. What I mean by that is that God doesn't need us because there is anything lacking in Him. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need our faith. He doesn't need anything to complete Himself or to make up something that is lacking in Him. He is entirely self-sufficient. He is utterly sovereign. He is all-powerful. Now, He chooses to save us, to adopt us, to delight in us. But He doesn't need to do that to make up for anything that is lacking in His goodness, His perfection, His holiness, His worth, His purpose, His pleasure. There is nothing lacking in Him. We do not ever make bargains or transactions with God. Now, that's a good way to understand the doctrine of grace. The utter non-needfulness of God that out of grace and mercy seeks to save us. Now, God's derision and then His wrath. Verse 5, then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. And the point that the psalm is making at this point is rebelling against God will sooner or later, and God is so patient with us, will lead to us being terrified in His wrath, in His fury. And that is the destination of humanity. Unless, and the psalm gets us there, we kiss the Son, we are devoted to the King, whoever they are. In the face of our defiance, God will silence us. Now, let's move on in the psalm to verses 7 to 9. And here we have another change of uh, voice. This is uh, verses 7 to 9, the king's speech. 
or God's Messiah King speaks. Now, the king's speech is a good uh, description here. And what I want us to do is to listen to the king's speech and then uh, find our way through the Bible to who it is. Now, you, you might be sitting there thinking, well, I know who it is. And yes, if you're a Christian, you do know who it is. But one of the things that's so helpful about having the whole Bible is the way the Bible gets to that is by excluding all other pretenders to the throne, is by the, the outrageous mercy and tenacity and grace of God in getting to that. And by the time we get to who it is, the Lord Jesus Christ, our picture, our vision of Him is enlarged, that is wider than the compass of, of our minds and our hearts. Here is the king's speech. This is the king speaking. The question for us to ask is, who is this? Who is singing? Who is speaking? The king says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, this is the king speaking, Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or we might translate that, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me. Ask of me. This is the king speaking. And he is saying that God asked of him, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, one of the things that the Psalms get us to do is to use our imaginations. Just like your imagination run with that image. You shall break them with a rod of iron. A rod of iron, when you smash it against anything, will never bend. It will never fracture. It will never break. You will dash them to pieces. Who is the them? The them is humanity that rebels against God. That is not a comfortable picture of God. But it's the Bible's picture. Dash them to pieces like an earthenware pot hit by a rod of iron. <laughs> There's a very powerful image that Jonathan Edwards, the preacher in the 18th century, used. What chance do you have as humanity to resist the judgment of God without, of course, turning to Christ, what chance do you have? As, you have as much chance as humanity of resisting the judgment of God as a spider's web has of stopping a rock tumbling down a mountain. That's the defense. And the rock will smash through the spider's web. 
It will not even be deflected off course. Now, who is the king? Psalm 2 verse 7 is an oft-quoted verse in the Bible. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or you are my son, today I have become your father. Now, when you hear a statement like, You are my son, we immediately think of paternity or genetics. In the ancient world, sonship, and the Bible, when it uses sonship, refers just as commonly to function or calling. Let me illustrate this. Well, let's actually try and do it as if we were in another country in the world. Actually stick your hand up, not just in your minds, but actually stick your hand up if you do the same job as, or you did when you were working, the same job as your parents do, did. Okay, one, two, three. That, that's just a brilliant answer. In the ancient world, it would be three of you who didn't do the same job as your parents did. So if you were a baker in the ancient world, you would become, if your dad was a baker, you'd become a baker. Or if you were a carpenter, son of a carpenter. That's why Jesus is called son of a carpenter. And Jesus morphs from son of a carpenter to the carpenter. In other words, your identity in the ancient world was bound up not just with paternity, but with function. And that's such a strong theme in uh, Scripture, Old and New Testaments. Jesus and the apostles make that point again and again. Now, here's the point. God is the king. God rules. This is Yahweh. Yahweh is the king. Yahweh rules. He is the ancient of days on his throne. Yahweh is sovereign. And when God anoints his Messiah, that king, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah becomes the son of God as far as God's function to rule is concerned. That's the meaning here. Does that make sense? The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Today I have become your father. In other words, you are my functional regent on the earth. You are the expression of my divine rule. You are taking on the function that is divine sovereignty. He is not speaking about natural birth nor new birth. He is speaking about sonship in the sense of being appointed to anointed to a role, the function that is kingly rule. Now, Son of God is a range of meanings in the Bible. Son of God will often mean the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Son of God uh, can mean the eternal God, but here it doesn't. Here it means the King, the, the, the one who is invested with the rule of God on the earth. That's what it means. So who is this? Well, David wrote this psalm. So let's read about King David. This is 2 Samuel 7, verse 11. The Lord declares to you, this is Nathan, the prophet, speaking to David, the king, 
when he is in Zion, Jerusalem, and the Ark of the Covenant has come, uh, all the priestly stuff has come to the same place as where the king is, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a dynasty when your days are fulfilled. This is Nathan speaking to David. Listen to what he's saying. When your days are fulfilled, in other words, when you die and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a dynasty for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Your house, David, your dynasty, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that's around 1000 BC when David reigned. David wrote Psalm 2 shortly after these events. Psalm 2 might have been David's coronation psalm. So David, the king, writes, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So it seems that it's about uh, David. But as we heard in 2 Samuel 7, Nathan the prophet is not speaking about David. He's speaking about David's son, David's offspring, and a perpetual line that will go on and on forever. So the psalm is not about David. It's about Solomon his son, and all the Davidic kings, and the house of David, the dynasty of David, all the faithful kings in the Davidic line, a dynasty, a royal house. I just notice in Nathan's words, if they mess up, I'll forgive them. That doesn't sound like the Messiah king of Psalm 2 in full at least. And then we get to, to um, then we get to Isaiah a few centuries later, and we'll hear these words uh, at Christmas time. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. Uh, the people of God in exile Years, centuries after King David was crowned in Jerusalem, the man after God's heart, King, God's King, who said, the Lord said to me, I am your son. And then Solomon and all the faithful kings and all the faithless kings of Israel and Judah. And it all falls apart. And then this marvelous prophecy from Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and then into the middle of that prophecy, these extraordinary words that hook us back into Psalm 2, for to us a son is given, to us a child is born, and the government will be upon his shoulders, that's back to Psalm 2, this mighty king. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end and so on and so now what davidic king is going to fulfill that prophecy well in isaiah's day they look back and they say well none has none has none has but god is reiterating his promise that there will be a messiah who will now we're not just tracing these texts through an ancient book we're feeling the commitment of god through human history to make good his promise and uh, it all crystallizes in the magnificent statement from God at Jesus' baptism. When Jesus rises up out of the water, having submitted to baptism because he will die to forgive our sins, the voice came from heaven. And uh, at that point in Jesus' ministry, the Spirit descends on him the voice of God speaks to him and Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is the recipient of the Spirit and the voice of God. And God says, now here is why you need to know your Bibles, you are my Son, Psalm 2. Not that you are the eternal Son of God, which you are. What he's saying is you are the King whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now if we had time to, to explore that, we would see that he quotes Psalm 2, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit present at the baptism of Jesus. You are my son. And he shocks us. You are the king. And he also quotes Isaiah 42, the servant song. And he shocks us by saying, you are the king, but you are also the suffering servant. The servant is the king. The king is the servant. Stranger still, the Messiah. You are my son. And at Jesus' transfiguration, he says it again, this is my son. This is the king. And, and we see Jesus at the transfiguration uh, transformed into his majesty. This is my son. Listen to him. And is that not the main point of Psalm 2? Listen to him. Heed him. Do not cast him off. Now just listen to the words of Psalm 2 again. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. David could sing that with some integrity. Solomon could sing it with some integrity. The line of Davidic kings could sing it with some integrity but the only one, and there is one only, who can sing it pitch perfect, is Jesus. How do we sing the Psalms? We were talking about this last week. Well, we might sing this bit of Psalm 2, but we don't sing it as if it were us. This is almost like we're listening 
to, to the choir of King's College. And one by one, the choristers drop out until we are left with a solo voice singing in perfect pitch, a pure, powerful voice that sings from everlasting to everlasting. And what a magnificent king he is. His majesty. Jesus, God's all-powerful, eternal Messiah King, who died and who was raised and then was crowned and now reigns, his message going to the ends of the earth, calling people to him. His kingdom is the only universal kingdom. His kingdom is the only kingdom that has endured. Every other pretender to the throne has come and has gone. Just read history. It is littered with pretenders to his throne. Every single one has come and has gone. But there is one king who reigns and rules and is supreme. His kingdom is unstoppable in its growth. And that king will return and judge in his wrath, all those who have rejected him. Now, the psalm concludes in verses 10 to 12. This is the response. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Think back to Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who turns from the world and turns to God. Blessed is the one who meditates in the word of God day and night. Blessed is the one who kisses the Son. It's like taking the hand of the sovereign and kissing it in an expression of devotion and loyalty and love. It is intimate. It is reverent. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Take refuge in Him. And the last word of the psalm. To those living in rebellion against God and His Messiah King. Now, God has established his king in the Lord Jesus. He reigns and he will return in judgment. There is not the ghost of a chance that you or anyone who rejects him will prevail against him in the end. Do we really think that we can prevail over Jesus Christ? 
How do you answer that question? Well, no, or... Do you really think you can prevail against Jesus Christ? The one whom God set up on a cross to forgive your sins. You see, when the gospel is understood, it confronts us with fear and love. Do we think we can prevail against the one whom God has crowned as the eternal, all-powerful king? Run to Christ and put your faith in him and make him your refuge. It's like a, a lifeline thrown to somebody in the sea. Just take it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, how would we describe it, sober yet wonderful psalm. Thank you for these beautiful words toward the end of the psalm, kiss the son, to kneel before his majesty and to kiss him. Lord, may we all turn to Christ before it is too late. We pray that many in this part of the world where we live and across the planet, many close to us who are not yet believers will turn to Christ before it is too late. And for those of us who have, by your grace, conscious that you do not need us, you want us, but you do not need us, conscious that you are kind and merciful, thank you with all our hearts that we can call you our Messiah, our Christ, our Jesus, our Lord. And we pray in his name. Amen.